Christ is risen, church. Amen. So for those of you who are joining us here in person, those of you who join us online, thank you so much for being here. Hi, mom, online. And thank you to all you guys that you would take some time out of this, uh, this holy week, this resurrection Sunday and gather together and come be a part of it here at MCC. Hey, I wanna start today by asking you guys kind of a big question that may be a little bit too personal, but I wanna ask you this question anyway. The question is this, what are you afraid of? Like, what is it that you find this fear that you can't get over in life? Or maybe that like unreasonable thing that you're afraid of. Let's just, and again, we're gonna have like some crowd participation today. So let's, let's do this. Um, what are you afraid of? Like, I'd just love to hear it right now. Work, Work yeah. <laughs> afraid of going back, yeah, spring break. Uh, family, afraid of your family. Mice. <laughs> I could tell you some stories about this room. Um, yeah. Failure, going to jail, prison. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> Watch out for this section right here. There's a lot of jail and prison and rats from this section for some reason. That's a little weird. But we all have fears. Everybody has these things in us and, and sometimes they're what drive us really hard and sometimes they're just kind of low grade. But almost everybody in this room, the main thing that we have in common is we have certain things that we're afraid of. We're all on the spectrum. There's the person in the room who I showed you this thing and you know, usually this is a, a man, but they're the one who's going, I'm not afraid of anything. And I got the no fear sticker on the back of my Ford Ranger. And I even put the no fear sticker on my, the back of my wife's Dodge Caravan because sometimes I drive in and I want everybody to know that I'm not afraid of anything. And then there's the person who's, you've probably got one of these in your family like I do, it's the person who's like, they just make up things to be afraid of. Like they, somehow they go out and they find brand new things every week, sending you articles. Hey, in case you weren't afraid already, let me send you a few more articles to be afraid of, of certain things. You know, did you know that this is in Coca-Cola? Did you know that the water out here in this, it's got this in it? And, and you're just like, wow, can I not just, I, I was doing okay until this email or this text or this link that you shared with me. We're all over the board on this. And as I've prepped and prayed and leaned into the passage where we're going today and thought about fear, one of the things that I've found, and it's really not something that was unique to me, but actually from God's word, is that actually we all have the same fear in common. That you could take whatever fear that you have and trace it all the way back to what's behind it, and that fear is gonna eventually lead you to this thing called death. See, because for those of you who just got through coming back from the beach on spring break, and you're that person who's like, I'm not getting in the ocean. Where am I like, I'll get in the ocean, I'll go out neck deep people at. There's a few of you here. Who, where are my people at who just wanna put my toes in the sand? Toes in the sand people, okay? For you people who are toes in the sand are like, I'm not going to the beach at all. Like we're going to the, the pool at the hotel room and I'll look out at the beach. That's, the, I, those are, I know you're in here too. You're not afraid of ocean water. You're afraid of what could be in the ocean water. You've seen Shark Week. Like, you know that out there is a shark that can eat me and I die. And I, I'd be willing to bet if I made you write down on a postcard or a note card, like, what are you really afraid of? What fear drives your life the most? If you trace that back further and further and further, eventually you're gonna get to, I'm afraid that this thing that I'm afraid of will eventually lead me to death. See, death and the fear of death is a great common denominator. And what Jesus does, and so I wanna to talk to you about this today. Jesus comes and he actually offers us freedom from the fear of death. And that's gonna be the big passage that we lean into today is because of his death and because of his resurrection, what we're celebrating today, he actually offers us a life where we no longer have to be afraid of death. And I don't know about you, but that's a life that I wanna live because maybe you didn't realize this, today is not just about coming in and experiencing the resurrection day. 
See, Jesus died and he rose, not for us to just have one day of the year where we come in and we just said, I wanna experience resurrection day. He died and he rose so that we could live resurrection lives. Monday through Sunday, our lives would be marked by the joy of knowing that we have a God who's overcome the grave. Now, the, the, the problem is, that's not really our reality all the time. And so I wanna show you this passage. We're gonna read through it, and then we're gonna walk through it. We're gonna see how Jesus offers us deliverance from the fear of death through his death and resurrection. If you got a Bible, grab it and go to Hebrews chapter two. We're gonna read verses 14 through 17, pray, and then walk all the way through them. Hebrews two, verse 14 to 17. This is the word of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's the word of God. Let's pray to him. Jesus, we thank you that this truth can be made evident in our actual lives. That these words on these pages are not just fairy tales that we would hope someday would happen. That you actually, through your death, burial, and resurrection, offer us lives where we no longer fear what may happen in these lives. And Jesus, I know in a room with this many people in it, this many people watching online, we showed up today with all sorts of fears. Fears that lead us to sin, fears that lead us to pull away from the connection that we crave, the fears that allow us to um, do things or say things that we wish we wouldn't have done. God, we are all sometimes tempted to have our lives run by the fearful voice inside our head. But Father, I pray right now in this moment that you would allow your children to no longer hear the voice of fear, but to be led and guided by the voice of their father. And so Heavenly Father, I pray in these moments that you would speak through me. I'm a broken man, I'm an imperfect vessel, but I pray that what would flow through me, my words today, would be your pure life-changing truth. And I pray that you would speak. Um, if you don't speak, I have said nothing. So move in these hearts and do the things that only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this passage, we lean into it. We've talked about it a little bit. This passage makes this point that Jesus comes and he sets us free and he delivers us from the fear of death. And that's a life that we all want and need to live, a life where we're no longer afraid of whatever may happen in this life, a life where we're not motivated by fear, but we're motivated by faith. And so let's walk through this passage right off the bat. The author comes in and he's a pastor to his church. He's writing this letter to help encourage them and spur their faith on so they realize who Jesus is and then who they are because of that. And that's why right off the bat, he says, since therefore the children, now include 
included in that children is not just you as the people, it's also Jesus as your brother, Jesus as the one who is connected with you. And if you go a couple verses up right there, what we talked about last week is Jesus is our brother who's not ashamed of us. He's the brother who is both the one who sanctifies us and the one who is the one who makes that sanctification even possible. And so it comes in here and he's trying to explain a little bit more this idea and concept that we have a Jesus, someone who is our brother, someone who's been through what we've been through, felt what we felt and knows what it's like to be in your chair, walk in your shoes. And he says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, saying that's what we all have in common. We all have this flesh and blood. We all have these fears. He, that's Jesus, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. If you're writing answers down and you wanna know kind of what we're talking about here and how in the world Jesus is the one who sets us free from the fear of death, he does that first and foremost by being our brother, by being one who has partook of the same things. Now, again, he's experienced the things that you've gone through in different ways, but he has experienced everything that is common to the human condition. So whether you're in this room and you're a middle schooler and you're going, Jesus has no idea what it's like at my middle school, or you're an elderly person in the room and you're going, Jesus has no idea what it's like at my nursing home, Jesus actually does because whatever's going on in one of these places versus the other place, the same root issues exist in both and Jesus experienced all of those, he's our brother. Now, what's different than maybe your brother or your sister is Jesus was not always just completely here as humanity. Jesus, the Bible tells us, existed from all eternity in the past with God, as God's son. But there was a moment in time, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus came, divinity put humanity on and came and lived life amongst us. And the reason this had to happen was because of what our verse says, that he partook in the same things that we have experienced and what we've gone through and then it says he died. Now, that should kind of go, okay, well, hold up, stop, wait a minute. Why did Jesus have to be God and then become God 100%, man 100%, full divinity, full humanity, and then die? Why is that? Well, here's some of the reason why. In order to save humans, Jesus had to become what? A human. He had to come and live this life and experience puberty and wake up in the morning with bedhead and have people who get on their nerves and experience what it's like to live on planet earth. He became our brother. He was a God who wasn't afraid to come down here and experience what life is like here. Our passage goes on to say, he's not just a brother who's experienced the same things that we've experienced, but he's a brother who through death, more on that to come, he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil. So what we can see there bound up in that word death is Jesus is one who comes and lays down his life so that we may have life. Now, what this reality awakens us to is Jesus is actually then our hero. If somebody, anybody, whether you even accept it or not, if somebody is willing to lay down their life, sacrifice their life for the sake of you having life, do you know what they become? They become a hero. That's what heroes do. Heroes are willing to face an enemy, to lay down their lives for the sake of you being able to have life. So how does Jesus set us free from the fear of death? First of all, he's your brother. He has to know what it's like to be where you are. Second of all, he didn't just come and go, hey man, let's just sit in this really terrible situation that is life down here on planet earth together. No, he says, I'm actually gonna rescue you out of this. I'm gonna rescue you from the fear. I'm gonna be your hero who sacrifices my life so that you... And anybody who would put faith in me can actually have life. Now, 
when we talk about Jesus being our hero and we go back to this verse, it should take you to this place where you begin to ask some questions. Now, I wanna, I've said a lot of words so far. And again, I told you this was a crowd participation message. I want you to take a second and reread this verse slowly. I know you got a lot on your mind. I know you got a lot going on, but would you do God the service this morning of slowing down and reading this passage? And I wanna ask you a question. I wanna take you to, I want you to do this on purpose. As you read this, I want you to see what questions come to mind. As you see a verse like this, what, what, is it where you, what is it that makes you kind of tilt your head like a dog when you start talking to it? Where you just go, hmm, how did that happen? Like, what does that mean? Or what does that mean there? Like, when you read this verse, what questions come to mind? Take a second, read it. You don't have to be a Christian to do this. You can be anybody. Like, just what questions come to mind when you see this passage? So one of the things that I was able to do over the course of prepping for this message is actually did the exact same thing that I did with everybody in here with a few individual people. And I sat down and showed them this verse. And I said, what problems does this bring up for you? Or what questions do you have when you read this? And the over and over again, recurring question, and maybe some of you, this was your question, was this. How did Jesus's death defeat Satan? Well, why did Jesus have to die? How is it that his death is what destroyed the one who has the power over death? How did death defeat Satan? And that's an absolutely great question. And this is what I'm gonna do the most of my rest of my time trying to explain to you because the freedom of resurrection life is bound up in this. But before we can understand the answer to this question of how in the world did Jesus's death defeat Satan? We've gotta understand, track with me here, the connection between your sin and my sin and death itself. And how these two things, sin and death, go hand in hand. And they always have. Let me take you back. If you've got a Bible, you can go there. Let me take you back to the very beginning. Genesis 2, 17. God's got Adam and Eve. They're already there. They're rocking and rolling. They're in the garden. And God's beginning to set up some ground rules for life here in the garden. He says these words to him. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. This is no surprising. Some of you have never gone to church or only go to church one Sunday a year. You at least have heard this part. Nothing new here. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Pay attention to what's happening. He's going, there's a tree over here. It's got the knowledge of good and evil in it. It's, a tr it's tree life. I don't want you to touch this. And what God doesn't do is, hey, if you touch this, you're gonna be in trouble. He doesn't go, if you touch this, I'm gonna, you're gonna be grounded. If you touch this, I'm gonna put you on this side of the garden and you on this side of the garden. And you guys aren't gonna get to do my next command, which is one that you're gonna enjoy. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, if you do this, you will what? Die. Seems harsh, just a fruit. But God makes his standard obvious to them. God is not a God who leaves you to your own vices to fill in the blanks about what's gonna happen when we don't do what he tells us to do. He says, if you eat of the fruit, if you sin, you die. Paul picks up on this in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans. There it is. Romans 6, 23. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. So again, 
There's this governing principle down here in planet Earth, down here in God's creation, where sin equals death. Now, who created and instituted that principle? God or Satan? God did. This is God's rule. God connected this idea that if you sin, it leads to death. Now, who could have probably been eavesdropping on the garden when he speaks to Adam and Eve and goes, hey, if you eat that fruit, you're going to surely die. Satan hears that and he's like, I know what I'm about to try to do. And he slithers up and first thing he does is he finds kind of Eve alone and Adam's not paying attention and he slithers up to Eve. He's like, listen, you really need to try this fruit. And she eventually does and she passes it around. And they fall and God shows up and he basically says, hey, because of this, death is gonna come. And the curse is now on you guys. The wages of sin is death. And that's why we see so much of the fallenness and brokenness that you've experienced in our world, that you experience even in your own life. It's because we live in a fallen, broken world. And Satan knows these things. So what he does is because he knows that sin leads to death, he tries to tempt you as much as he can into sin, into the things that you know you shouldn't do. And again, these are God's rules. And he understands God's rules. That's why he does what he does. So let's, let's look at back at our passage. He says, since therefore children share in this flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. I mean, Jesus comes and he puts flesh and blood on. He lives what we live. Now, what we know about Jesus is he does this same things thing perfectly. So he walks through temptation. He walks through people betraying him. He walks through family members thinking he's crazy. He walks through all of those things, but he does that without sin. He feels the pull of the flesh. For, to get this notion out of your mind that Jesus is just some Prozac guy who's just all God and never really feels what we really feel about human beings and, and the temptation that we feel. He's not just walking through earth, you know, nope, nope. You know, he, he's not that guy. The Bible makes it very clear, and Hebrews probably more than any other book in the New Testament explains to us Jesus' humanity and how he felt everything that we feel, but he was also divinity at the same time. And in doing that, it says he partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And again, remember, our big question is what? How does Jesus' death destroy or defeat Satan? Now, now that we got the connection between sin and death, let's go to that next part, the next part of this sentence where it says that through his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of it. Let's camp out on that word destroy. If you're an underliner of your Bible, go to that word destroy. That word destroy is kardageo. Let's try to say it again. Say it again. All right, you're gonna be, again, crowd participation. Be exotic here. If you can roll an R, this is the perfect time to do it. Kardageo. One, two, three, kardageo. Good job. What this means is not necessarily like to destroy, like we think we just drop a bomb and everything is just annihilated. This word to destroy oftentimes is even translated to render powerless or to render inoperative or to abolish or to make useless. So put that into the verse. Now he's saying he took on this flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless. He might abolish the one who has the power of death. So track with me. He does this through him dying. But how in the world does that free us up from the power of death? Now, next thing we got to be able to do is understand what in the word that phrase, the power of death means. What is this power of death that Satan holds over us? 
And how did Jesus destroy that? It's great questions. I would explain it to you kind of like this. For every single person who's ever lived, Satan has a giant file cabinet. And within Satan's giant file cabinet are files. And every single person in here, he's got a folder on you. Same way he's got a folder on me. Within his file, his giant file cabinet of all human existence, he is an amazing record keeper. He's like the world's greatest accountant mixed with a lawyer. He's just so good at paying attention to detail because he doesn't wanna miss anything that you do wrong. So he catches everything that you do wrong and he's got a great file on you. And he opens up his file and every person in here, you got a file. Okay, okay, these are the college years. This is a real page turner here. Like it was wild during this time of their life. And then you come to this part and he's go, oh, this is when they started going to church. And here's where they said they were gonna pray for somebody on Sunday and then they did not pray for them. Not Sunday, not Monday, not Tuesday, not Wednesday. They did not pray for them again. Let's see, at all. He's got everything. He's got your file. He's got everything that you've ever done wrong on file. And so in the grand scheme of things, this is why it says Satan has, or he holds the power of death. What this means is not that Satan can come and kill you. Not that Satan is the one who holds the power of death. Like he's just out here, you know, just looking at people he doesn't like and going, you do something that's way too good. And he's like, and you're, that's not what this verse means. When it says he holds the power of death, it means he's got your file. It means he's got the proof that you have sinned against a holy, righteous, perfect God. Now, back to this God's rules and regulations and the connection that this God put between sin and death. What did the God he hates, what did the God that Satan hates say happens to people when they sin? They die. Now that's what Satan really wants to happen. He wants you to die. But what he knows is he can't kill you. But the thing that can kill you are your sins. So he keeps a great record of every single sin that you have ever committed. And when the Bible says that up until Jesus is on the scene, Satan has the power of these, what that means is that at the end of anybody's life, they would come to this moment where they sit before the judgment seat of God. And Satan is going, all right, God, I'm gonna uh, levy your rules here. You said that when they sin, they die. And here's their list. Here's Trent's, here's Susan's, here's Bill's, here's all these people. When you stand before him, here's their list, here's why. Death now is a doorway to destruction, a doorway to separation from you because they got a file. And listen, you got a file. He's got a list of everything that you've ever done, everything that you're doing right now, because you're probably in some stuff, and he's got a list of everything that you're gonna do. He has every bit of that on file. Now, before you freak out, remember, we have in Jesus someone who the word tells us very clearly has destroyed the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. Now, again, we said he's our hero. So first of all, he's destroyed the one who has the power of death. Now it goes a step further. If you go down to the next verse, he didn't just destroy the enemy. Like it's one thing for a hero to come and rescue you and to beat up the enemy who's got you captive, but no heroes in the really good movies, they just leave you on the planet where the bad guys are. They take you back to earth. They take you back to the place you were created for. They take you back to the place you belong. So you can get an environment where you're no longer bound by what the enemy had you. That's why he says, he didn't just destroy the one who has the power of death. He did that and he delivers all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong 
slavery. Now, what in the world does this mean for us? And again, how does Jesus destroy the one who holds the power of death and deliver us from the fear of death? I'm gonna show you a verse in the book of Colossians. I'm gonna show you it and try to explain it again with these files. And hopefully this begins to make a little bit more sense. There's this passage in the book of Colossians that I think illustrates this very, very well. The apostle Paul's writing to this church in Colossae and he says, and you, he's talking to the church. Just let him know I'm talking to you. And you were dead in your trespasses. Again, this is, you've got a file. And sin, it leads to being dead in your trespasses. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Basically, that was what I was saying. Your, your flesh just did whatever it wanted to do. There was no, no bound on your flesh. Like it did everything that it wanted to. Eat what you want to eat. Sleep with what you want to sleep with. Drink what you want to drink. Don't do what you don't want to do. Everything. Just go as far as you want to go. And then he says, God made alive you people together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses by canceling the record. So that means somehow, some way, this record gets canceled. Like this gets nullified. This becomes destroyed, cardargeo, abolished, no longer useful, no longer standing in the court of law. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its, again, back to the whole legal side of things, with its legal demands. Legally, in God's law, this demanded your death. But he says, he set, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, so what this means, this is awesome. This means what Jesus does is he takes your file, my file. He goes to Satan's big giant filing cabinet and he just, he doesn't just like get a little bit of them. He takes like, all right, get everything in here. All the files. There's somebody who had a real big one. He takes all the files. And he comes down here to earth. He double checks to make sure there's no stuff he forgot. There's nothing in there. He takes all of it. And if this verse is true, what this tells us is he takes this file and he marches to the hill called Calvary with everybody's file. And even though he's perfect, even though this doesn't fit him, this seems weird, this doesn't work, this doesn't compute because I'm the perfect righteous son of God. I don't have a file, I'm perfect. There's nothing when you open up mine, it's just air. He doesn't have a file on me. I lived this entire life, complete perfection. But what he does is he comes and on the cross, he takes everything that is in our file. And the verse makes it very clear that the legal demands for your sin and my sin are nailed to the cross. They are set aside. So now what happens, and this is why it says he destroyed the one who has the power over death. So put yourself in this grand cosmic courtroom where you're sitting on one side of the courtroom, Satan's on the other, and Jesus, the, the King of Kings, Lord of Lord, the ultimate judge of the universe is on the other side. This is what this verse means when it says that Jesus has destroyed the one who holds the power of death and he's delivered you from the fear of death. It means that when Satan gets up for his turn to make his accusation of why you deserve after your death to go to eternal damnation and not go to be with the Father in heaven, Satan gets up and he opens your folder and he has nothing. All of his file has been abolished on you. All of his file is empty. 
All of his file has been destroyed because it caused the destruction of the Son of God on the cross. And so what this means for you and I is that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the accuser can only in your life now make false accusation because your permanent record has been expunged. Every sin you've committed was upon the Savior on the cross, nailed to the cross by his stripes. You've been healed of what you deserved. Now, yeah. And this is, this is where death goes from being a doorway to your utter destruction and death now becomes a doorway to enter into the face of your heavenly father. And Jesus is the one who makes this possible. Now, what's really scary is most of us, we treat life like this. Like Satan's still got one, like when it comes to our file, we can experience that, man, I've been delivered from death. Like Jesus is resurrected and his resurrection life is living in me. And you can come to church on Easter Sundays and Tuesday, and you can come anytime. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. But then back in your heart of hearts, when the world slows down, you're in the car by yourself and the phone dies, can't get some noise to drown out the voices in your head, you pull back out your own file. And go, man, I still got this one thing in here. He may have deleted all the other stuff, but I know about the abortion. He may have deleted all the other stuff, but he knows, and I know, and God knows that I hit my wife in 1993 when I came home too drunk. He knows, and I know that Maybe he's freed me from my sins, but I still struggle with the same sin. It's, it's here, and, I, and, I, and there's, it's, there's, this is the only one that's left on the page. Can't get it to go away. And so th this is where you got to understand, many people in this room, you have experienced salvation. You've experienced this truth and reality that you, right now, you no longer should be afraid to die. Because you know when you die and you stay in that courtroom, you're gonna be forgiven. So at the judgment place, you're like, I'm good there. But then you continue to live a life that is bound as a slave to fear because you think these things that are, that, that are in here are really not in here. You think that there's stuff in here still, and it's not. If you've been forgiven, you've been forgiven. And what's the problem is this is where we all live. This is where we live in this slavery to fear because we don't realize that at the crucifixion, we're delivered from death, but at the resurrection, we're delivered from the fear of death. Because de if he could go through what he went through as a perfect, spotless, blemishless savior with all of our files on record, nailed to him, holding him to the cross, and he rises again, then we live with this permanent reminder, faithful truth that it cannot hold me down. So now I don't have to live in my life with the fear of death because I know death is a doorway that leads me to eternal life with him. And again, I'd take you right back to where I started. This means for us that we are not just Easter day experienced people, that we are Easter everyday people. We have resurrection power for every day of our life. This is why I love, he goes on in verse 17. And he says, he's circling all back to, he says, therefore we had to, 
or he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Again, he's saying like, he's like you, he gets you so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. The priest is the one who intercedes on behalf of God and man. And wouldn't it just be like our God to send a man who is God to intercede between God and man? That's who Jesus is. He's this faithful high priest. He's merciful and faithful and a priest who intercedes because he wasn't the one who went out and got a lamb or got a goat or got some doves and then sacrificed them on our behalf. But he is the priest who becomes the lamb, who becomes the blood and becomes the one who lays his life down sacrificing for us. And that's why he can make that payment because it was his blood, not an outside resource. That's why it says in his word, he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Mercy, a little bit different than grace. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. So when it says he's a merciful priest, that means that he does not want you to receive the punishment that you deserve. And the reason he does not want you to experience that punishment is because he took it. Remember, Satan, who has a file on you, the things that Satan can do in your life is not being able to kill you. Nobody, if you, if you go to hell, and I pray you don't, but if you do, it will not be because of Satan. It will be because of your sin. So Satan's number one job, like what he's all after is getting you to miss out on forgiveness. Because when you miss out on forgiveness, you miss out on the opportunity to know that you are forgiven. And I don't have to live my life based off of fear, based off of these things, because I know I have a merciful high priest who took what I deserve instead of giving me what I deserve. And on top of that, I have a faithful high priest. I love this. If you got a Bible, you can flip forward to Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25 says that he can forgive or save to the uttermost and he lives to make intercession for us. Now, I love that first part that he can save to the uttermost. I could spend all day talking about that, but I don't wanna camp out on why he is living to make intercession for us. The way that this is talked about in, in the Greek, if you actually see it, it's an ongoing forgiveness. It's an ongoing intercession that he's making for us. So what I don't want you to necessarily see is Jesus just up in heaven, just constantly always praying for you. The reason I believe Jesus is constantly interceding on your behalf is because you still, even though Satan and his power has been destroyed and it's useless in his hands, if you're in Christ, he still, you experience this, he still is constantly making accusations against you even when you're in Christ. That's why you have to have a savior like Jesus, a merciful and faithful high priest like Jesus who lives to make intercession for you so that when every false accusation comes across the desk of heaven, he goes, no, that's false, fake news. That's not who they are, Jesus. That's not who they are, Father. That's not who they are, Satan. Now, I wish we would get a little bit more of that confidence in us to when he starts making accusations against you. You go, no, 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 no. That's not who I, that may be who I used to be, but that's not who I am. I'm forgiven, I'm set free, I'm a child of God. He says, I'm perfect in his sight. I don't don't feel like that all the time. He says, I'm an ambassador for Christ. He says, I've been redeemed. I've been paid for in full. He says, I'm gonna rule and reign with him. And again, these are the truths that guide us along, not just resurrection day, but resurrection life. And so go back to that point. 
He is a priest. He's our brother. He's our hero. He's our priest living to make intercession for us so that we can not just be people who experience a resurrection day, but that we would be people who can experience resurrection life. Life every day. Marked by joy, marked by prayer, marked by connection to a father who we know has forgiven us. And so the question I wanna let sit at the front of your mind as we get ready to, to see a real life example of how this sermon has been lived out in a human life is right now at this very moment, are you fear-driven or are you faith-driven? And you know what it feels like to be driven by fear. Oh, I don't have enough money. I gotta go take this extra job and sacrifice my family and I'm gonna go do this thing. I'll move across the country for a $10,000 raise and sacrifice all these things because I, don't, I, gotta, I gotta have enough. I gotta have enough. I gotta be provided for. Or I'm gonna sacrifice my own purity for the sake of looking at something I shouldn't look at to be able to experience the pleasure that I want to experience because I, 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 this life may be all there is. I've, I've gotta get this now. Am I driven by faith or am I driven by fear? If you're in Christ, friend, and you know if you are, if you're in Christ, please realize you've been set free. You've been set free from the fear of death. This life, despite every accusation that the world may make against you, you do not and you will not. And the call on your life, despite what the televangelist will tell you, the call on your life is not to live your best life now. It's to know that that life is coming Post-death, post-death. So come hell, come high water, come poverty, come shipwrecks, come beating, come persecution, whatever may come, we live resurrection life. That means we have no fear in death. And that's the purpose. That's the purpose for us. What I wanna do now is I wanna share with you a story, a story of a man who went from a life that was bound by this fear of death fear of death that led him to addiction, a fear of death that led him to making an absolute mess of his life. But I want to show you how Jesus has turned the mess that he made of his life into a message that God may use to change your life today. I want you to see Craig's story. was not different, uh, but when she started to go, that's when she wanted me to go to MCC, and that's when a lot of these things became obvious to me. What I would want everybody to know, I did not come to MCC seeking Jesus or seeking redemption or any of these things. I came to MCC so that my wife would think that I was doing what she wanted me to do. 
uh, at the back of my mind, I'm probably protecting the fact that I didn't want to get divorced and I didn't want to lose half of my stuff. So that's why I came to MCC initially. But I think we'd be remiss if I didn't tell you the story of how like the, the world came crashing down. Uh, uh, and Lee was in Birmingham. She was helping her sister move. And we just had some things happening in our life um, and in our family that just brought up a lot of bad memories for me. And uh, I tried to one night uh, find comfort in the bottle of a whiskey bottle. Um, and unbeknownst to me, I don't remember leaving my house, but I decided driving would be a good idea, even though I don't remember deciding that. Um, what I've been told in hindsight now is that at three o'clock in the morning when Lee finally found me and I was at the hospital, <laughs> that she drove back from Birmingham, Alabama. And the first thing I remember was waking up and seeing my wife's face in the hospital. After that, she took, we, we went home I took a shower, uh, and um, she laid down in the bed next to me, and she told me everything was going to be okay. And then she asked me if I was, if I needed some time to be by myself, and I said, "Yeah, I think that would be a, a good idea." Uh, so she like she prayed for me, and then she left. And it was that moment when I was alone. Uh, I think we've all heard about people when they say that like someone's been dead in the, in the hospital or like they thought they were dying and God gave them like this helicopter view of the room and they saw all these things happening to these people. Well, I kind of had a helicopter view that if the, if, the, if the shoe had been put on the other foot and if this had happened to Lee, the things that would spewed out of my mouth, whether it's like she's going to lose her job. Do you know how much our insurance is going to be? What's going to happen when the people you go to church with find this stuff out? You think you're a good Christian. What she had, I needed. Um, and that was really the first time in my life. When, I, when I've told this story before, I'll say, I had prayed for a meal, and I prayed because I was supposed to. Um, this is the first time in my life with my face on the floor, with my posture correct, that I prayed to my father. This was the moment when I was no longer on, this, on the throne of my heart. It was given to God. But it was also, it, I had to be pushed off this throne, okay? And that's when I was on the ground and I, and I looked and willingly gave it up and said, this is yours. I'm not qualified to be here anymore. So I can't do this life without you. I definitely don't know what today is going to look like after this. But that's when my life changed. After that night, uh, we were at a prayer meeting on that we used to have on Sunday nights called The Link. And a couple of guys that I knew came up to me uh, and told me that they were starting something called Joshua's Men and they really wanted me to be involved in it. Uh, they were smart enough to do that in front of my wife, so she said, yep, he'll be glad to do that. Uh, <laughs> and I found out that I think it was 12 guys and I think eight of them were either elders or former elders of the church. And, you know, I'm a week and a half away from uh, waking up in the hospital 
DUI, just thinking my life's over, definitely don't feel like I need to be in a room full of these godly men. Um, but it was life-changing. And the thing that I think is important for this story is we're about three or four months in and we were told that we we're going to give our testimonies. Okay, and uh, so I worked really hard for a, a couple of weeks to craft the story that I was going to let them hear. You know, so obviously I'd not completely been crucified to my flesh because I still was ashamed of a lot of the things that had happened. Um, but I had my whitewash story that I was going to let them hear if I was called upon. And that night, the first three guys that went either talked about their struggles with alcohol or their family's members struggle with alcohol and how families were torn apart and how God had redeemed their lives. And uh, I told you about the first time I prayed, that was the first time I was not like the Holy Spirit just said, okay, here's what's coming out of my mouth, you know? And uh, I was transparent and told them, but um, when you give your life to God, Satan doubles down. And even when I'm telling this story to these people, what's in the back of my mind is, well, hope you have fun being in this group for three months. They're probably not ever gonna let you go back to church again. Um, but when I finished talking, uh, they literally put a circle of chairs around me and prayed for me, and I'll never forget that. The first thing I would do is I would say, get in the open, okay? Because when things, uh, the light is what heals, okay? And find someone you trust and let them know what you're going through. That's the first thing I would say. Um, one of my favorite quotes is that solitude is a gift from God and uh, isolation's a tool of the enemy. And you left our own devices to our own flesh. You're not gonna get better. When the words come out of your mouth, when you confess, confession is the first part of healing, okay? Um, you're going to be scared what this other person's going to say to you, but you got a pretty good shot. You got a pretty good chance that they're going to put their hands on you. They're going to pray for you. Um, and just, you know, Trent, what you and uh, Morell and I've been going through, and just what we feel as elders of the church, what I would also say read James, okay? Read the book, uh, read James 5. And it says if you're healing, if you want to be healed, Go to the elders of the church, and if it's prayer with confession, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful. That's the beginning of healing. Uh -huh. Whether it's that you send an email to our confidential email address, or heck, I'm not just a face on a video today, man. I'm always at this place. Trent's always at this place. Morell's always at this place. Our pastors are always at this place. It's complete, com com the, if I can learn how to talk, confidentiality everyone that's why we do what we do man we would love to talk to anybody Amen. church that is what resurrection power looks like in the life of an individual to go from i hope you remember what he said to, to being in a, a hospital room thinking my life is over fear of death raging in a mind to a moment of complete and utter surrender face down in a bedroom 
saying, Jesus, you have pushed me off the throne of my heart. I surrender this life to you. Raise me up something new. But I hope you don't miss what was in the middle of that. There was prayer. Specifically, there was prayer that came from a woman of God. And church, I'm here to tell you that there is something powerful about prayer. That prayer is this beautiful thing that we enter into. It's great to come in and experience Resurrection Day, but I believe prayer is where we begin to unlock resurrection power in our lives and maybe even in the lives of other people. That's why I wanna invite you in this coming Wednesday, a couple of days from now, we're having a night of prayer, a time where we at the church gather together to not just be a people who go, okay, we're gonna get in here and we're gonna just rah, rah, rah and celebrate Resurrection Day. But no, we're gonna be a people who come and believe that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is a power that can manifest itself and heal our wounds where we're at. And so I'm inviting you uh, to, to, whether it's everybody in this room, whether it's everybody that you go out and bring in, but, but this would be a time where we can come in and experience freedom. This would be a time where we could come in and experience healing. This would be a time where your faith can be revived, where the spark that may just barely be left can be burst back into the flame that it used to be. And so I'm inviting you out this Wednesday, seven o'clock. Cannot wait to be with you. Now, as much as I'm looking forward to Wednesday, we don't really have to. We can experience resurrection power through prayer right now as we take communion. See, communion is a special moment where we, and if you don't have it, you can go get, get it back there in the back. Communion is a special moment where we take of Jesus' broken body for us. Jesus has poured out blood for us. And we are reminded yet again that this is the brokenness that made me whole. This is where this life was given so that my life could be one that experienced resurrection. And my prayer as you enter into a time of communion with your Father, communion with your Savior, communion guided by the Holy Spirit, that you would ask this question, where has fear led me that you want faith to direct me? Where has this fear led me where you are not here? So that I can be delivered, I can be set free, and I can experience resurrection life. And after we receive communion, we're gonna sing an incredibly powerful song that just reminds us of how deep the Father's love is for us, that he would give his one and only son for us to, again, it's quoting right out of the book of Hebrews, that he, through giving his son for our lives, would be many sons and many daughters to glory as he nails our sins upon the cross. And then I pray, I know it's Easter Sunday and you feel like you got things to get to, but right after that song's over, I'm gonna baptize a woman into her new resurrection life. And if you're here today and that's something you wanna experience, and you want today to be your resurrection day as well, I would invite you into that also. We have the water, we have shorts, we have towels, we have the other things, the unmentionables, we have everything literally that you would need to make today a day where you finally, maybe for the very first time, fully surrender to what God is doing in your life and go into the waters of baptism, have your old life washed away and be raised up anew in Christ. I'm gonna be up there baptizing her, but if that's you and you wanna be baptized today, go right out there to the back. One of our elders is out there and he'd love to help you get up to Sky Pond and we will baptize you today. And before all that, go meet with Jesus. Talk with him. Taste and see that the Lord is good through communion and then we'll sing and then we'll join the angels in heaven as we celebrate someone that was once lost 
fully found resurrection life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Move in our hearts as we speak with you. In your name.